Welcome to the third message in our series, The Hard Time Letters. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the role of grace and faith soteriologically. And we'll get to what that means, that long word, in a little bit. Let's open our text. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Paul is now shifting gears. After spending the first chapter encouraging the reader, he now shifts gears and reminds us, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Now, this next slide I want to show you is from a chart that I've put out in the lobby a few times. And it shows the history of the English Bible. I'd like to interject some times for you. I whet your appetite last week, if you'll remember, when I talked about minuscule writing. The Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament were both written in minuscule. Remember abundance on the table, abundance on the table, remember that? Where there were no spaces between letters, no commas, no punctuation, But later, those were added by man. I mentioned also chapters and verses were later added by man. And I hope that whets your appetite as it does mine. When were chapters added to the Bible? On the chart, you can see that it was Stephen Langton in 1227 A.D. when chapters were added to the Old Testament. A Jewish rabbi by the name of Nathan added chapters in 1448 A.D. to the New Testament. And Robert Esten, also known as Stephanus, added verses in 1551 A.D. And those were simply in the Greek text. They were later added to a French Bible in 1553 A.D. So the first Bible that had chapters and verses was a French Bible. It wasn't even English. (laughs) And it was in the 16th century. So understand when you're reading your Bibles, although they are helpful to have chapters and verses, those are the opinions of man. Hopefully God's hand was in that, and I certainly think his hand was in some of that. I mean, look how many 316s there are that are so cool. So maybe God's hand was in adding the chapters and verses, but certainly... Long after the Bible was inspired and completed, chapters and verses were added. I want you to understand that because of what we're going to do next. I'm going to take the next verse and I'm going to carve it up into two sections because I think it should be. Beginning again with verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Paul is trying to remind us of something. He's got a point. Verse 2, the first part of it, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. You see, you didn't know it, but when you were living in sin, like the rest of the world, 
you were obeying the devil. You didn't realize you were obeying the devil until you discovered Jesus. And then you realize, oh, I was living for the devil. You thought you were living for yourself. That's because we're selfish by nature. We learn this very early on. As some of, we, some of us start talking, even with our small children today, you'll see the children start saying, mine. We might even play games. No, that's mine. No, that's mine. We play this game. Selfishness is, is what we do. And it's, it's certainly okay to have self-care. Some of us have failed at that. And the Bible teaches that you're supposed to love others as you love yourself. So you're supposed to love yourself. There's an assumption that you do. It's healthy. But once you become a Christian, you're no longer selfish. You are selfless. And you just thought you were living for yourself before when you were outside of Christianity. No, 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 no. You were living for the devil. I want to show you an image. This is a picture of the presidential palace in Kabul. That's what it looks like on the outside. I want to show you a picture of the inside. This is the presidential palace. This is the president's desk. And those are Taliban sitting at the desk and circling the desk. Because now, as we've learned, five days ago this photo was taken, we've learned and we just prayed for them this morning that Afghanistan is now under the control of terrorists. And that's horrible. Even though the outside of the building still looks the same, the desk still looks the same, it is occupied by terrorists. And it's not just bad there in Kabul. I mean, all these images come to mind, you know, uh, uh, kids being handed over razor wire we've seen in the news. We've seen uh, people falling to their death trying to get out of Kabul from airplanes. We've seen all kinds of horrible scenes on the tarmac in the planes and all different other scenes we've seen play out this week. I want to remind you, you need to step away from the screens. I'll recommend a book to you, and it's hard to recommend books these days. It's difficult because of the venues in which we can use, but I want to recommend to you the book called Be the Parent, Please. It's a book that highlights the scientific evidence that we are causing developing minds to not develop properly because we're exposing them to screens too much. Some of us babysit toddlers by putting screens in front of them, handing them a cell phone, a tablet, putting them in front of a TV. And and, and no wonder we have developmental problems with the kids today. We just continue to cause them problems by putting them in front of screens. And what's really sick is most of us acknowledge and know this, and we put ourselves in front of screens. And our developed minds are turning to mush. So I would encourage you, read that book, Be the Parent, Please. And I would also encourage you to step away from the screens. Step away from cable TV. Step away from social media. We've seen a lot of it, and it's discouraging. you got to know the news. I understand that. Don't, don't spend so much time in front of a screen. I show you these images because the world is even worse now. It's, it's in a worse and scarier state now that Kabul, Afghanistan, is run by terrorists. You do understand that when 
you surrender to Jesus, that's wonderful, that's great. But once you do that, you were once owned by the devil, and he wants you back. And if this church, if this church catches on fire and we see more and more people coming and we're doing more and more that pleases the Lord, I guarantee you the devil will target us and try to take us down. He won't mess with us if we're not impacting lives for Jesus. Because if we're not impacting lives for Jesus, well, he's already got us. And I can tell you that when you have already, when you are gotten by the devil, huh, the world, your world is a scarier place, like the terrorists going into Afghanistan. It didn't just negatively impact Afghanistan. The whole world is a scarier place. Your world is a scarier place when the devil's got a hold of you. Your home, your schools, your places of employment, your church. If the devil's got a hold of you, the collateral damage is far and wide. I want to show you another image. Look at this. Yeah, that's a puppet with puppet strings. You see, when the devil ran your life and you didn't realize it, he ran you like a puppet. You didn't know it at the time, but now you do. And when you gave your life to Christ, those of you that have, you did not surrender to another puppet master. You surrendered willingly to someone that you have chosen to live out your life, to try to please him to the best of your ability and follow this wonderful guidebook we call the Bible. You're not owned anymore by a puppet master. You've decided to follow the master of all things. He knows what's best for us, and we choose to do what he asks us to do to the best of our ability. Nobody likes to be told exactly what they must do and be controlled like a puppet. But that's what we were when we were dead in our sins, when we were owned by the devil. Don't be a puppet of the devil's. Now look, I'm going to sit down. We need to talk. Scripture up behind me, 1 Timothy 4.16 in the NIV, says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, what if you don't? Think about that. God clearly says that we're supposed to watch how we live and watch what we believe. Those are issues of salvation. What other people see us doing and what other people know that we believe impacts their lives. It ha it's an issue of salvation. Now, I'm quoting to you in this passage from the NIV. I don't know if you noticed, but today I did things a little bit differently. The passage I've been reading from is from the New Living Translation. We're going to change that a little bit later. I like a lot of the wording in the New Living Translation. But there's a part of it that I don't, and I'm going to show you that today. We'll get back to the English Standard Version when we get to that part. But the reason why I'm mentioning to you this passage, 1 Timothy 4.16, the reason why I sat down, it's kind of like a tool. I sit down because it's like somebody that has a, 
they're losing their voice and they stand up on a stage and you, you have to work harder to listen to them. So you listen better. I sit down because you have to like look around people's heads to see me better. You have to work harder to pay attention to what I'm saying. The preacher's doing something different. He just sat down. What is this? So you pay attention a little bit more. I want you to be very careful to pay attention to what this verse says. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, a lot of people come to church because they want to hear what they like to hear. Jesus, when he had the largest crowd that he would probably ever have, after he fed the 5,000 men, 15,000 total men, women, and children, there is the saddest verse possibly in the whole New Testament in John chapter 6, verse 66. Many, after that, many began to leave Jesus. He didn't take the largest crowd that he would ever have and say to them something that would get them to keep coming back and bringing their friends. No, he said to them what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And he kind of weeded out those that were serious and those that weren't. And sometimes as a church, we, we like to hear what we believe. We like to hear what we already know. We like to hear what we like. But sometimes we need to hear what we need to hear. And it's, sometimes it's not pleasant. And today, we're going to hear some things some of us don't want to hear. And if I tell you something, or your televangelist, your favorite televangelist, or your favorite author, or your parents, or whoever tells you something about God's Word, make sure you check it with God's Word, because this is our answer book. This is our go-to book. Whatever I say or anybody else says, always check. It was Scripture, because this is God's wisdom. <clears throat> Back in our text, we'll read the rest of that verse 2. Let's read it all together, starting with verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world. What is he doing? He's hammering it away. We, we used to be like them. Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Verse 3, all of us, excuse me, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Did you catch that? All of us used to be like that? God's wanting us to empathize with other people who are dead because of their sins, their sinful life. They, they don't know Jesus. It'd be easy to be critical and judgmental of them. We are supposed to empathize with them. We used to be in their position. We're supposed to reach people like that, and he's wanting us to emphasize something, and you'll see. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. We were in that condition. Verse 4, we'll read through verse 6. But God is so rich in mercy that He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Notice that there is an addition. Man has put a parenthetical note here. There's parentheses, and it's this phrase right in the middle, and if you don't have this underlined, maybe you should in this section. Look at this, because it's the point. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. 
This is about grace. If there's any one word that Christianity, salvation, could be narrowed down to, it would be grace. The cross. That's what it's all about. Look at verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us as shown in all He has done for us who are united with Christ. Notice, God can point us to can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all He has done for us who are united in Christ. It is all about His grace. And now we get to the wording I don't like in the New Living Translation, because what they did is they got together and they, they made it fit the doctrine that they already believe. Now, if you can imagine, if we are given the task of coming up with a translation that our community could understand, we would want to stick with the original language. You know, in this particular passage, you know, we'd want to get to the Greek. If it's Old Testament, we want to get to the Hebrew. So we rely on our scholars for that, that amongst us that know what exactly the original languages mean. And we want to be careful. We don't want to confuse people. We want them to understand what the author's intended meaning, what God's intended meaning is. <clears throat> but you'll notice, in the New Living Translation, which I actually think is a good translation, they, get, they, they interject their beliefs, particularly that come from the song Amazing Grace. Now, I love the song Amazing Grace. I absolutely do. But I don't sing the line in it, and that they have emphasized and tried to squeeze into the scripture here. Look at this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And there it is. The hour I first believed. That's a line I don't sing in Amazing Grace because it's not biblical. <clears throat> but the New Living Translation people decided to interject it into the Bible. The Greek does not say God saved you by his grace when you believed. I'll show you. In a moment, a more accurate translation. And you can't take credit for this. I love that wording. It is a gift from God. What is a gift from God? The grace. Not your faith. Verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. Good wording. So none of us can boast about it. Good wording. Verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. Oh, good wording. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Good wording, except for the first part. I do love the song Amazing Grace. <clears throat> but the Bible does not teach it. It appears the hour you first believe. There's more to it than that. You, you actually do have to make a commitment to live for Jesus for the rest of your life. Repentance is part of the plan. We'll get to that in a minute. I'll show you the chart again. But let's look at a more accurate translation, the English Standard Version. Before we do that, I want to remind you, there is a, if you want to hear about God's grace, and I preached a message years ago. It's online. If you do Spotify, if you do 
iTunes or whatever the venue. Uh, some of us don't even attend church service here. We only listen online. Some are, will be listening to this and they'll be tempted. Once we get to the elephant in the room, people might want to stop listening. That's, that's what they do. Closed-minded people don't want to hear what they don't already agree with. Some of you might be closed-minded. You might disengage as soon as I bring up the specific elephant in the room that you didn't know was an elephant in the room, some of you. Let's go ahead and read that accurate translation in the English Standard Version because it's more in line with what the Greek actually says. Starting with verse 8, we'll read to verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Does this not sound like what you've heard before in other accurate translations? Yeah. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, if there's any one word salvation could be narrowed down to, it's the grace of God. Christianity could be narrowed down to one word, grace. If there's any one word, it would be grace, not faith. Martin Luther, whom I think will be in heaven, we're doing a carnival that's focused on Martin Luther. I mean, I I believe he will be there. I think he's a, a great person to follow in church history, but he believed that you're saved by faith alone. If you want to know the answer to that, if that's true... Turn to James chapter 2, verse 24. You'll find the answer. I don't have it up behind me, and we don't have time to go over it today. But you'll find the answer to that, whether we're saved by faith alone, in James chapter 2, verse 24. The Bible doesn't say that in our text. It says, if anything, by anything alone, it'd be grace. But it, it says, by grace, through faith. Our access to the grace is through our active faith. Read James about faith that has to be proven. You can't just say you believe. You have to prove it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What's not your own doing? Well, some people say it's the faith. God gives you the faith. You didn't decide to attend church this morning. You didn't decide not to speed on your way here. You didn't decide not to use foul language with the family this morning. You didn't decide those things. That was all God did it. You can't take credit for any of your choices. There's whole denominations. There's whole belief systems that center around teaching people that their choices are not really their choices. Those are God's choices. So where's accountability in that? A bunch of baloney. The gift isn't the faith. The gift is the grace. That's God's part. Faith is our part, which is the access to the grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, the grace. It's the gift of God, the grace, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The cross happened because God loved us. That's his grace. Nothing we could do to earn that grace. God did that because he loved us. We access that grace by our faith. We demonstrate our faith for Jesus by the way we live. You can't brag about it. It's not a result of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has set us up to succeed. He has set things up so that we would live for him. That is our expressed faith. It's our demonstrated faith. It's our illustrated faith. We can't just say you believe, prove it. An illustrated faith is our access to His grace. Look at the chart again. 
Grace is the big concept. I've got the word faith up behind me bigger, <clears throat> just because we're talking about the access to the grace right now. But grace is everything. It, it, without the grace of God, our faith means nothing. The cross had to happen. So look how it happens here. After somebody has given you the gospel message, because we're mandated to, Matthew 28, you can choose to believe, John 3.16. But that is, it doesn't end there. It's more than that. Even the demons believe. That's what James says. Then you repent. You change your mind. Acts 2.38. And confess. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And you're baptized into Christ. Acts 2.38. Romans 6, 3 and following. 1 Peter 3.21. There's many passages if you'd like more. <laughs> Only one person that ever walked the planet that didn't need to be baptized, and that was Jesus. And he said, everybody should do this. So, hey, don't leave baptism out. And then you got to live the Christian life. Some people will end it, you know, okay, now that you're baptized, you're good. No, you're not. No, you're not. You have to live for him the rest of your life. James 1.20 reminds us, do not simply... Listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's our faith. Demonstrated, illustrated, lived out. That's the access to grace. It's by grace through faith. I'll remind you, I sat down to talk to you about 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now I will tell you what I'm talking about when I'm saying the elephant in the room. Nowhere do we find in that chart that I gave you, nor do we find in Scripture, the sinner's prayer. So I want to ask the question, what about the sinner's prayer? Where does that fit in? Well, let's go back in history. Here's that chart again of the English Bible, the history of the English Bible. When did the sinner's prayer first appear? Now, the evidence is overwhelming. Now, you can go out there. People say, I, I researched, and what they mean by that is I Googled. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's what people think is researching today. But if you want to Google and try to find, just understand Google doesn't understand everything. But Google could take you to some places, check the resources, make sure they, you know, double check, make sure they're using good resources. But if you ask the question, where did the sinner's prayer come from, what you're going to find, a large, overwhelming amount of evidence out there is that the sinner's prayer did not appear until the first part of the 20th century. Now, some would argue that maybe, maybe it was in... Um, maybe, maybe it was in literature in the 16th century. Okay. Okay, well, if, it, if, it, if it's in the 16th century or the 20th century, either way, if it's in the 16th century, that's 15, 1,500, 1,500, 1,500 years long after the Bible had been inspired and completed. And if it's the 20th century, that's, at the very minimum, it's 19, 
1,900, 1,900 years, long after the Bible was inspired and completed, that the sinner's prayer suddenly appeared. Which means either way, 16th century, 20th century, either way, it didn't come from the Bible. It appeared long after. Ah, some people say, oh yeah, it's just an interim pastor at Central Kitsap Christian Church. What does he know? It's just his opinion. Would you like to know what the Southern Baptist leadership have been taught recently? The Southern Baptist Church is certainly the greatest purveyor of this teaching, this using this sinner's prayer. Certainly other denominations use it. It's infiltrated just about every church. Many of you have seen it or been a part of it, maybe done it. I'd like to take you to a quote from David Platt, Verge Leadership Conference 2012. David Platt is one of the greatest leaders in the Southern Baptist denomination that pushes this sinner's prayer. Look at what he said to the leaders, to the leadership in the Southern Baptist Church. He said, I'm convinced that many people in our churches are simply missing the life of Christ. And a lot of, them, a lot of it has to do with what we've sold them as the gospel. For example, pray this prayer. Accept Jesus into your heart. Invite Christ into your life. Should it not concern us that there is no such superstitious prayer in the New Testament? Should it not concern us that the Bible never uses the phrase, accept Jesus into your heart, or invite Christ into your life? It's not the gospel we see being preached. It's modern evangelism built on sinking sand. And it runs the risk of disillusioning millions of souls. What is that sinking sand? What is that about? We're told by Jesus to build your house on the rock. <laughs> and we, we simplify it to mean, we've got to build your house on the rock. That is Jesus. No, that's not what it means. <coughs> Excuse me. That's not what Jesus said. He said, the wise man is the one who listens to these words of mine and puts them into practice. Like the man who built his house on the rock. And the one who does not listen to these words of mine and put them into practice is a foolish man, like the one who built his house on the sand. The storm came, the winds blew, and the house fell, and mighty was that fall. Build your house on the rock is not about build your house on Jesus. It's about build your house on doing what Jesus said, hearing these words of his and putting them into practice. Don't oversimplify it. You see, my Bible and your Bible in our text says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 in the English Standard Version, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God be with you.